According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, we are in Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. The Proverbs of Solomon. You're thinking, wait a minute. What were we reading in the first nine chapters? All right. Well... It's a, sec- it's a subsection heading, as it were, and it's a, like a reboot on the book. We're ready now for a whole new section in chapters 10 through 24 that has a different tone, a different emphasis, a different style of, uh, of poetry, uh, a different approach. We have concluded the parental wisdom portion in the first nine chapters, and we're now moving on to the personal wisdom, personal and public wisdom in uh, Proverbs 10 through 24. And so we've been here, what, now three weeks, I think, in a row, three or four weeks now. We've got a good jump on it. We're uh, in the midst of verse 1 and verse 2. I think uh, we're going to be able to start gaining some some good ground and just start tackling a lot of these verses, uh, a verse a Wednesday. If we do one verse each Wednesday, how long will that take us to get us through... Uh, <laughs> well, it'll take us forever. But but no, the, the benefit, though, is is that we're actually doing more than a single verse. Because do you know how many times when we talk about uh, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. That comes up again and again and again and again throughout the book of Proverbs. And so uh, we'll be able to, to gain a lot of ground, I think, down the road if we cover the concept well here in, uh, in this chapter. All right. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, examining our hearts and humbling ourselves under truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for your truth. It is our blessing, Father, to be fed. And uh, Father, thank you for being so faithful. Minister the word of God to us this morning. Open the eyes of our understanding. Allow us to feast on the wisdom of your truth. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And uh, we'll just run from top to bottom and work our way through since I don't have my cheat sheet up here. Um, We'll just run through it. How about that? The Proverbs of Solomon forms a subheading within the overall collection. That's point one. uh, I like to use point one in in every chapter outline to kind of fix the context for how this chapter fits with what preceded it and what's coming after it. So uh, where does chapter 10 fit? Uh, Well, we have a subheading here. We're going to have more subheadings as well, by the way, in chapter 25. Additional Proverbs of Solomon that were accumulated during the days of, of Hezekiah. And so that becomes an important lesson for us on canonicity. Uh, They were written in Solomon's day, but they were not added to the canon in Solomon's day. They were not added to the canon of Scripture until Hezekiah's day. And so, you know, how does that work? How does Solomon write something that 300 years later, the Holy Spirit decides, hey, this goes in the Bible, all right? Well, truth is, the Holy Spirit knew that 300 years ago when he inspired Solomon to write it. But he deferred the addition of those Proverbs until Hezekiah's day. And I think that's, that's genius. I think it's brilliant on God's part for how he wrote the Bible in that, in that fashion. Likewise, uh, Proverbs 30, there's a heading there, uh, Proverbs 31. So we have Augur, the writings of Augur and the writings of Lemuel, and uh, those chapters that were as well added to the collection when they were placed in the canon of Scripture. Um, we have some subpoints under this. Won't spend a lot of time. The emphasis, tone, and structure is quite different from Proverbs one through nine. Uh, short, pithy statements of truth are presented in no discernible order or progression, and it almost seems like a shotgun blast. It almost seems like just these these pellets of doctrine are just flying everywhere, and and they are. All right, and that's by design. All right, and so getting them in this fashion, getting them uh, with the repetitive nature. Of, of Proverbs is useful. It helps ingrain it in our thinking. And it's entirely different than what we had in those first nine chapters. We talked about the parallelism, the difference between antithetical, synthetic, and synonymous, the different poetic structures, and we'll have more on that as we work our way through. Chapter 10 clearly contrasts the righteous with the wicked. And again and again and again, we've got the contrast here, the foolish son, the wise son, the righteousness, the pursuit of righteousness versus the pursuit of wickedness. And 
just jumps out the page at you and you can't help but notice it that uh, when you get to chapter 10, boom, there's the, there's the skyscraper. You know, it's a huge tower of uses of uh, tzaddik or uh, rashat in terms of righteousness and wickedness in uh, this portion of the Proverbs. Vocabulary for righteousness and wickedness. Point three, Proverbs 10.1 forms a great threshold between parental wisdom and personal public wisdom. And thresholds are, are scary, and that's why I want to spend some time on it, and I'm thankful that the Scripture does that. I'm thankful that Proverbs really has it as clearly delineated as it is. When you're on that threshold, when you're on the verge of leaving father and mother and, and cleaving to one another and the two shall become one flesh, when you're on that verge of stepping forth in your own generation, when uh, you're no longer in the place that you have a parent who is pleading with you to, to glorify Christ and live the Word of God, when you're now in the place where it's the Word of God itself that's making its statements and you either live by it or you don't, right? Um, Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. There it is. Take it or leave it. Okay? Make application. The Word of God says this is the way it is. Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And it, and, it write, and it records it in the third person and it leaves it out there. You know, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. There it is. Pick one, <laughs> okay? And these are short, pithy statements that are declaring um, a choice that's set before you. And you are now accountable. You are in your own generational accountability, standing before the Lord accountable for whether you're going to do the A part or the B part in this uh, poetry, all right? And it's a, it's a tremendous threshold here. Generational accountability is presented very clearly in the Scriptures, and we spent uh, a whole hour just on that one slide, just on that point C, talking about generational accountability and how God deals with generations that's why I'm trembling so much over our generation, because it seems like God's dealings with our generation presently, this, this current generation of, of America, goodness, pray hard, all right? Because I believe we're encountering discipline in ways we have not encountered it before. God deals with generations. All right, now we can start to get into the meat of this. Point four, posterity, prosperity has only one standard, and that is the dichotomy of wisdom versus foolishness. When it comes to the next generation and what it is that is prosperous about your posterity, your children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all right? We're talking about real wealth. And what is it that pleases you? It is your children who are walking in truth. That's the real wealth. That is the prosperity of your posterity, all right? And the standard is, are they walking in the Word of God? Are they pursuing wisdom or are they pursuing foolishness? As we see in verse 1, a wise son makes a father glad. You know, and I can be proud of my son, whether he's a, a pastor or a, a, a web designer or a ditch digger or whatever he is, all right? If he's walking in truth, I'm going to be proud of him. If he's walking in the world, being conformed to this age, well, that's the second part of the verse. A foolish son is a grief to his mother. And so the contrast is wisdom or foolishness. And that the real prosperity, the real wealth that's passed on, all right? You can talk about leaving a legacy or leaving a heritage or leaving, what is the, what is the uh, Carnegie endowment going to be like, right? Or the Bolander endowment or the, you know, just pick the endowment. What is, what is going to be bestowed upon the next generation and the generation after and the generation after, see? Nowadays, you can't... It's impossible now to leave an endowment like was done back in the olden times because that's all been taxed away. But uh, in any event, how about an endowment of doctrine, an endowment of the Word of God, a heritage that says, you know what, the Word of God was a priority to my dad, the Word of God was a priority to my mom, and it's going to be a priority in my marriage, it's going to be a priority in, my, in raising my children. Okay? And there's a lot of things that my parents did that I didn't emulate in my parenting style. But one thing I did emulate was you're going to be saved and you're going to be in, under the Word of God and we're going to be a part of this, see. And, and they got the gospel early. And they got grounded in the Word of God early, see. And so we have the, the principles there. Obviously, in economic matters, the eternal profit and loss statement is the only one that matters, 
We will look at verse 2. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. We want to have a perspective that understands the contrast between, uh, you know, earthly money and, and true wealth. <laughs> the, the, the distinction between uh, this life and the next. Uh, the physical universe and uh, where the real treasure must be laid up, laid up in heaven, all right? And it, it's almost uh, nonsensical. It's almost a, an oxymoron. You, you know what that term is, an oxymoron? It's a statement that defeats itself, right? Like military intelligence. It's just there's two self-contradictory things, okay? Jumbo shrimp. You think, what? who put these things together? All right, but ill-gotten gains. Now, what is a gain? A gain, by definition, is profit, right? A gain is, is an increase, is a profit. So how can a profit not profit? How can a gain not gain? Reason being is, of course, it's the product of unrighteousness, and it's, it's, it is a secular uh, gain that has been achieved by non-godly methods, and there is no eternal profit to that. All right? But righteousness delivers from death. And so there is an infinite eternal profit that comes by glorifying Jesus Christ, by being saved, by operating in His divine economy. And uh, the aspects there. See, it's a whole different economic system when, uh, when you are saved. And that's uh, not on the slide, but in, in uh, Revelation chapter 3, when Laodicea thought that they were the, the, the best megachurch going, okay? Laodicea would have fit in well in the United States in the 21st century because uh, they were rich and had need of nothing. And at least that's what they thought was the truth, right? Revelation 3, verses uh, 14 and following. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And here's the, here's the key, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's their, that's their belief. They assume and that's true. See, and you, ha- and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That what you believe to be the case, your assumption is so diamet- diametrically opposed, it is the polar opposite of reality. Because you are entirely wrapped up in the earthly, in the secular, in the temporal. All right? And you are completely oblivious to the spiritual dimension. I advise you, in verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. There is a spiritual economy that we are supposed to be partaking in. And I think oftentimes we don't because we don't teach it often or we don't understand uh, how we make these kind of purchases. It's, it's, It's all by grace. The price has already been paid, but we still have to make the purchase. All right. If you're going to go buy gold, what do you have to what do you have to give in exchange? <laughs> you know, if you're going to buy money, what do you what do you spend to buy money? All right. And how do you exchange one currency for another currency? And how do you purchase gold in the spiritual marketplace of heaven? All right. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, because it's buy from me, gold refined by fire. Ooh, that hurts, doesn't it? Refined by fire, that's the testing of our faith, isn't it? That is the faithfulness under testing. When you're faithful under testing, you are making a purchase. You're not just laying up treasure in heaven, you're actually receiving the pocket uh, expense money for, uh, for this life. So that you may become rich. And white garments that you may clothe yourself. So you're spiritually naked, you've got to get dressed. How do you get dressed? Well, we've got the garments that we get from Him. The white garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. So that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Isn't this interesting? I mean, it's like we're reading the very same issues that go back to the fig leaves in Genesis 3. When will we ever learn? (laughs) We have a nakedness and we need to cover the nakedness. And Jesus Christ has made provision to cover the nakedness. And in the spiritual dimension of the church age, here we are. 
And too many of us are doing the same thing Adam and Eve were doing. We're just finding fig leaves of our own invention. And we're not dressing ourselves in the manner that he has so designed. And uh, I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, every single spiritual deficiency that is imaginable in the church age, there is a divine remedy for it, but we have to partake of the divine economy to do so. You have to use the right economy. See, the eternal profit and loss statement is the only one that matters. So getting back to Proverbs then, uh, 10.2, we have the contrast here. Uh, It'll come back again in chapter 11 and verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You know, it, it, folks that have the, the, the fatter bank accounts, they've got the diversified portfolio, they've got the, the they're, they're more flush in their cash flow, um, they're, they're well diversified, they're, they're quite insured, they're very well uh, taken care of. Um, what's that going to do for them in the Great Tribulation? <laughs> when when fire and brimstone and wormwood is falling and antichrist is reigning and and uh you know it's interesting or how about when the heavens and the earth are destroyed by fire <laughs> and the process there all right heaven and earth pass away and then the whole universe is consumed by fire what good is the earthly portfolio going to do you there see the contrast between secular wealth and and uh spiritual wealth could not be more vivid than uh, than what some of these passages are describing. How about 1 Samuel 12, 21? Some of these I know we saw a week ago. We're, I finally caught up to my slide. Uh, I know we didn't get to Luke. I know we didn't get to 1 Timothy. Uh, first, did you read Psalm 49? I assigned that to you on a homework basis. Anybody read it? Nobody read it? All right. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 21. We need consequences for not doing your homework. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 21. The um, interesting rebuke that happens here. In, In verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God Uh, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. The crowd finally figured out that they were wrong to ask for a king, and now they're under even more discipline, other consequences, because God gives them what they want. And now they want Samuel to pray. And this is huge. Remember we talked about the the benefit that Moses and Samuel are in their intercessory prayers. Uh, Jeremiah was praying for his nation, and God told Jeremiah, quit praying for Jerusalem. Even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me, they wouldn't deliver this people. Well, here's the example of Samuel and his intercession. Samuel was legendary for this, just like Moses. So Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And this is remarkable because, see, they've already passed a fork in the road. They're not going to go back. They can't go back and undo a decision that's already been made. But they can move forward in faith. They can move forward accepting the consequences, meaning they're going to have, you know, 40 years of Saul. But if they keep their eyes on the Lord and they walk right, they're going to get 40 years of David coming up. See, I find this is a remarkable pattern when, um, you know, I've made mistakes and made poor decisions and I can't go back and undo it, but I can make better choices now moving forward and make sure that I'm walking in the light moving forward. And even as I take my lumps and encounter my circumstances, in the meantime, I'm doing so for the glory of Jesus Christ and praise Him for that. Then verse 21, you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things. And that's what we're dealing with here in the the secular wealth of what happens when you get distracted by politics. After futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. Don't confuse the temporal with the eternal. The temporal is futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. So in other words, you can still have uh, the the right perspective with respect to politics and economics and and everything else that's out there, but just make sure that it's based on the word of God, that you're not turning from the left to the right. The minute you do that, you're going to be pursuing futility. 
vanity of vanity is all is vanity. You're, you're going you're to write your own personal book of Ecclesiastes, <laughs> okay? And I don't recommend that because Solomon did that for us. He wrote it. It's in the Bible. You don't have to write your own, okay? The principle there. Psalm 49. Since you didn't read it on a homework basis, we'll take a look at it. Psalm 49. And there's some highlights throughout the, 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 the chapter, but really all 20 verses spell this out. What a contrast. Are you, are you living for the profits and the gains in this life? Okay? This life only? Without the eternal perspective? Okay? There's nothing wrong with, with long-term planning and investing and leaving an inheritance to your children. That's the design, and you should do that. But to do that without the eternal perspective is vanity. That's what we're saying. That's what the Scripture is saying. So Psalm 49, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And these, by the way, wisdom principles are not just for the saved. An unbeliever can apply wisdom principles and be blessed in, in, in temporal life blessings. Both low and high, rich and poor together, my mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Now stop right there for a moment. Just those first nine verses paints that contrast. Whether you're the richest guy in town or the poorest guy in town, it doesn't matter. The, the price for salvation is not earthly money. You can't buy eternal life. And, and you can't buy wisdom. This wisdom from God does not come uh, uh, in secular means. It does not come through uh, investments or work or labor or anything that we can earn and deserve. And so right there we have the contrast that's being painted. That there's secular life and there's spiritual life or eternal life. And one of those can't be, uh, can't be bought, right? Related to, uh, related to that. All right, verse 10. For he sees that even uh, wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. All right, believers die, unbelievers die. Smart people die, stupid people die. Rich people die, poor people die. So what should be our perspective before that day comes? <laughs> okay, do, do we want to get oriented properly? Yeah, obviously we do. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. And now we start to see a difference. A difference in perspective and it's shaped by the attitude they had up front. The thinking they had as they were accumulating that wealth. Why were they accumulating that wealth? Why were they working? Why were they saving? Why were they investing? Why were they, why were they building an estate to be left behind when they died? Why? Was it for God's reasons or was it for man's reasons? Was it spiritual and eternal or was it entirely carnal? Was it shaped by, the, by this world? It's a huge difference. See, biblically speaking, of course, you want to leave a legacy to your children. It starts with doctrine. It starts with salvation. It starts with all things spiritual. Then, of course, the, the funds secondary to that. Okay? I've said many, many times, seek ye first does not seek ye only. Okay? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, if, if you pass on the best spiritual heritage to your children, great. And then if on top of that you also bequeath upon them uh, physical resources, wealth, and what have you, great. That's not wrong. That is not wrong. Uh, when, when David knew he could not build the temple, what did he dedicate himself to? Paying for it. <laughs> That's right. God would not let him build the temple. But what did he do? He contracted for the lumber. He forged an alliance with uh, Hiram, the believing uh, Gentile believer, king of, of Tyre, and uh, had everything ready to go. So when Solomon became king, the, the temple was, was paid for. It was funded. See. All right. 
But here uh, in the carnal approach, <laughs> their inner thought is that their houses are forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. And this is a carnal way to produce an artificial eternal life. Say, well, as long as, you know, I will live forever if my name lives forever. And so long as my name is on a monument or on a hospital or on a town or on a state or whatever, my name will live forever. All right? And that's a carnal approach. And yet how many people are pursuing that? They're pursuing a legacy where their name endures forever. See? Well, does it really last forever? What happens when in centuries to come... They decide, well, it's not politically correct anymore, so sorry about Mount McKinley. Uh, President McKinley, you're, uh, you don't have the name you used to have. Uh, now we're going to call it Denali because that was, the, that was the, uh, the, the, the cannibal pagan name that they had before. And, and, but now, but see, now it's in vogue that we're going to celebrate uh, this other culture. You see what I'm saying? All right? And I don't mean to mock or ridicule. I'm just saying that there are winds that, that blow different directions at different times. And so you may be popular now and may have your name on a mountain now. How long is that going to last? Okay, Stephen F. Austin, how famous is he? Well, we live in his town now, don't we? Until it gets renamed. Until they decide, they, they decide, oh, he was a bad guy, or oh, he owned a slave, or oh, he was, you know, let's, let's rename this. Okay? Anyway. I'm rambling. No, I'm illustrating. If, if you think calling your lands after their own names, I, I don't really suspect that Jollyville was named after Jolly, John Jolly. Um, you know, in, in the years to come, are they going to rename that Bolander? I hope not. All right. How sad would that be? Um, you know, if you can't get a state, try to get a city. If you can't get a city, get a neighborhood. Anyway, man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. All right? There's a certain uh, amount of approving what they're doing because you want to do the same thing in your generation, only you want to do it better. As sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. So guess what? Death isn't the end. Death, they're sleeping, and then they're going to wake up. All right? And who's going to rule over them in the morning? In the resurrection, who has the better resurrection? Who rules over ten cities? Who rules over five cities? Who rules over one city? Who, ha- who gets the neighborhood then? Who gets the, you know, who gets the phone booth? You know, whatever it takes. If I get one little corner with a phone booth, that's... Anyway, what, what, what do we get in the resurrection? And who's going to rule over me? The upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be... And that's assuming, of course, that they're saved, that their unbelievers are going to be resurrected to the resurrection of death and be cast into the lake of fire. Their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. You know, how many, uh, how many rich guys are going to be in heaven and they're going to be working for their, um, their chauffeurs? Because their chauffeur on earth was a believer that was growing in the Word of God and is, is uh, maximum rewarded. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away, and his glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. Though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. What a powerful chapter. I mean, this chapter puts earthly wealth in perspective with the eternal. With the eternal. All right? And I think that's uh, a delight. Uh, Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. Luke 12, 15 through 21. Doug? All right. Luke 12. Verse 13. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <laughs> okay? This is always great. When uh, this, this happens again and again and again and again. And um, people have some kind of a dispute and they want Jesus to fix it. You know, and James and John, they, did, they were doing the same thing and they got their mother in on the act to, you know, try to score some assigned seating in, in uh, the millennium. And here they want him to settle this matter here. Uh, but he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? Said, uh, since when is this my department? Since, since when is this my job um, to do this? And then he said to them, beware and be on your guard. This is Luke chapter 12. Verse 15, he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For, and, and there's lots of forms. Okay? It, there's a lot of different forms in the way that it takes. And there's some that we kind of, you know, that we gloss over and we excuse and it's no better. It's still greed no matter how pretty you make it or how you dress it up. Every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Understand what our life is, what our true life is in Christ. And it's not our possessions on this earth. These are the means, these are the blessings that He supplies so that we use them to glorify His Son so that we accomplish the work that He's given us to do. There's a difference between being wealthy and making wealthy. And we're going to talk about that in our next verse of Proverbs 10. And He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. All right? Now the problem isn't in the choices he's making. The problem is in his motivation and his thinking behind it. If you are productive, that's great. But if you see that there's a means to become more productive, that's great too. But don't lose the priority and don't lose the the perspective on why you're doing what you're doing. Profits are not bad. So he says, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, there's nothing wrong with with capital investments to increase your storage capacity, to increase your um, production. That is perfectly biblical. But the problem is is in the, in the, uh, the mindset behind it. I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You're not accumulating wealth for your own, exclusively for your own personal enjoyment. There is nothing in here where this man is is serving others, where this man is blessing his family, where this man is serving the Lord, where this man is, 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 you see what I'm saying? And so uh, nothing wrong with... uh, feeding himself and enjoying himself and and the blessings of wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is the only reason why you're accumulating wealth, then you're maladjusted. And the maladjustment is the problem. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And And this is the issue. If you're not heavenly minded, if you're not oriented to the fact that this day I can be standing before my judge, I have to give an account. I have to give an account today for choices I'm making. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? And and the indication is that this man will not enjoy his his judgment. This man is not going to enjoy the consequences. He was looking forward to all the good things he was going to enjoy. He's going to get none of them. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, that's the key. Now, if you are rich towards God, on top of, of course, or to start with, if you're, if you're rich towards God and then He blesses you in such a way so as to provide the, the secular wealth as well, you see what I'm saying? Then you're seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else is, is gravy. <laughs> Everything else is, is bonus, icing on the cake. Stay faithful then too, because the, the prosperity test is tougher than the adversity test. Understand that if he's giving you that kind of capacity, then he's going to have work associated with it. There's a reason why. He's not giving you wealth to be wealthy. He's equipping you for the work of service. All right. Anyway, and it goes on beyond that even. Even beyond verse 21, it goes on 
with respect to the ravens and the lilies and the and the and why God provides what He provides and why uh, what you have is sufficient and if He gives you something beyond sufficient, why do you have something beyond sufficient? And what should be your thinking towards the surplus, towards the beyond sufficient? Okay, I think it's interesting because. The Father knows you need these things. He's not ignorant of your needs. And when He provides your needs, and then when He provides beyond your needs, why has He done so? Why has He chosen to do so? Why has He entrusted you with um, prosperity beyond your needs? Well, (laughs) somebody else will come along and say, well, you don't need that, and somebody else is more deserving and take it from you. Or, you serve the Lord and appropriately and utilize what He has provided in His design, in His will. Okay? We'll talk about that as well. Finally then, First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. My favorite of all these texts is right here. This is in a church age context. And all the closing admonishments that Paul is giving here to Timothy. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, okay? Because every rich guy you know is rich in this present world, which is passing away, which is going to be destroyed by fire. All in the, This world and its works will all be burned up. But if they are rich in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. And that's a marvelous expression because it is uncertain, right? Absolutely uncertain. You know, if you have a whole wheelbarrow full of, uh, of uh, currency from the Republic of Texas, how rich are you? Or you have all this, you got, you got to have a, a warehouse full of currency from the Confederacy or currency from, I once held a one million Deutschmark note in my hand from the, the Nazi uh, Deutschmarks. had Adolf Hitler's picture on it. It had one million Deutschmarks on, on this piece of paper. All right? And uh, I asked the old man, I said, well, what would this buy me? He said, nothing. <laughs> you know, a whole wheelbarrow of those might get you a loaf of bread or something. There was just such inflation and such devaluation of the currency. Um, the uncertainty of riches. No, fix your hope on God. That's where your faith is to be. Fixing your hope on God who richly supplies us, notice, with all things to enjoy. Now this, you've got to preach this and you've got to understand this. This is why it's not sinful. You're not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong. If He has supplied something, enjoy it. If He has supplied a Ferrari, enjoy the Ferrari. If He supplied a, you know, a Mustang, enjoy a Mustang. If He supplied a toaster, enjoy your toaster. Whatever, whatever He supplies... That's his grace provision. Let's see, it's an army rock metallic toaster. All right? <laughs> it's cool. What he has supplied, you enjoy it not for its own sake, but because it's your father who has blessed you with it. And you're thankful that he loves you. You're thankful he meets your needs. You're thankful that he supplies these things. All right. And notice. Um, and, and do you enjoy them all by yourself? <laughs> Are you Scrooge, you know, uh, the miser that just enjoys it? Or do you enjoy sharing it with the other loved ones that he has provided it to? Because did he just give it to you? Or did he give it to you, your wife, your children, your family, your church, your, the body of Christ? Who did he give it to when he gave it to you? Well, who are you? Okay. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. All things belong to you. Okay? Then he says, um, who richly, richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And if we have his perspective on this wealth, then we can apply verse 18. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The whole point in the surplus, in the abundance, in the generosity, God has been gracious to you and through you wants to be a conduit of that grace 
to others. You get to be a reflection of the grace of God when you are generous and ready to share. When you get prideful, though, and start getting full of yourself, thinking, man, look at everything I have done. Man, I have nowhere to store my goods because look what I have done. I know what I will do. I will build bigger barns. And you're all about what I have done and not about what God has blessed you with and why He has done that. What He intends to do with that. What position has He put you in so that you are now suited to, uh, to do this? And as you are rich in good works, in, in, you don't have to be Bill Gates to do this, the widow with her two mites was, was doing this. The two little leptocoins that she dropped in the, in the pot in the temple, uh, just the two little leptocoins, and she gave more than all the rich guys put together. She was rich in good works, generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. You want to know how to lay up treasure in heaven? This is it. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord in every capacity, including financial. Your time, your energy, your uh, money, your um, energy, did I say energy already? Your uh, passions, all that you do, all that you are, belongs to him anyway. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The biggest issue with most of these financial planners is, you know, when they're planning for long-term planning, they have long-term investments, they, they want you to diversify, and you've got a certain segment that's going to be short-term and a certain segment that's going to be long-term and a certain segment. And, and guess what? Even the long-term isn't really long-term when you plan for 20 years, 40 years, 60 years. Plan for end of life. That's not long-term. <laughs> okay? We're planning for eternity. We are planning for eternity. That's, that's eternal planning. That's the future. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. They may take hold of that for which is life indeed. And you know, we, we talk a lot about different things and the kids today and, and they, they, they're starting life in the hole. They're starting life with such college debt. They're starting life with such student loans. They're starting life with, you know, it's, it's, it's rough in a lot of cases for what the generations... Uh, are dealing with. I get that. But forget about for the moment how they're starting their generational life. How are they starting their eternal life? What have they laid up in heaven? When they pass through the veil of eternity and they stand face to face with Jesus Christ, what are they starting with? What is their, what is their seed capital for eternity? I think in some cases it's very little. And that's, uh, that's unfortunate. All right, so the eternal profit and loss statement is the only one that matters. Let me get back now to Proverbs 10. This is why ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You know, if you think money can solve all your problems, here's a problem money doesn't solve. And that's where you're going when you die. Then verse 3, Proverbs 10, 3. Uh, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Another contrast, more antithetical parallelism here. We have an A statement, we have a B statement. Um, we want to understand both sides of this. We want to understand the, 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 the impact on this. You think, well, I'm righteous and I'm kind of hungry right now. <laughs> okay, my stomach's grumbling. You ever get in the middle of a Bible class and an idea hits you and you think, hmm. And then you feel bad because you're supposed to be concentrating on the doctrine, right? The pastor does the same thing. Isn't that scary? I'm preaching a sermon and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Today is the Wednesday before the deacon's meeting. This is the Wednesday before the deacon's meeting, right? Okay. Wednesday before the deacon's meeting. I try, we have deacon's meeting this coming Sunday. And uh, Wednesday before the deacon's meeting, I try to uh, get together with my deacon chairman, and we usually have a lunch. All right. The kind of distractions that come when you're in Bible class, and you're supposed to be concentrating on the doctrine. All right. 
So confess if you have to. The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. All right, now, hunger is one Hebrew word. Craving is another Hebrew word. There's a reason why they're different words. One is legitimate. One is not legitimate. One is normal. One is perverted. And we'll talk about that as well. Um, And how God, and, and when we're talking about time versus eternity as well, how God may permit certain things for a short time, but has eternal provision. Okay? A lot of application in this verse. But here's my uh, principle. Legitimate appetites are designed by God and they are provided for. He will not allow the righteous to hunger in any capacity. Because there's a lot of appetites. Okay? And He designed every one of them. And He's provided for every one of them. But illegitimate cravings are not designed by God and they are not provided for, not by God at least. Okay, They will be provided for by Satan. They will be provided for by this fallen world. And we can provide for them ourselves, and oftentimes we do, because we're pursuing illegitimate cravings, inordinate desires, inappropriate targets for our appetites and our affections. And so we have the contrast here. The, the first term for appetite or for hunger... Um, Am I given? No, I didn't really break it down. I'm not doing a ton of exegesis in this study, but they are different words, just know that. That uh, the term to be hungry, to have hunger, versus the illegitimate craving, the starvation hunger of craving. A, a hunger that is so controlling, it is actually destructive. And it's a fun word study because it describes, it's the same Hebrew word for craving, it's the same Hebrew word for destruction. And, and there's a part of me that really wants to know if appetite for destruction came from this Hebrew word. Maybe not. Anyway. Legitimate appetites are designed by God and provided for. He knows it's real. You have real hungers, He's right there for you. There's food hungers, he's got provision for you. There's sexual hungers, he's got provision for you. It's called marriage, all right? There are appetites in all capacities. There are appetites for different things, and he has a provision for every legitimate appetite in the things that we come to, uh, to hunger after. Even, I think, even just um, we have a hunger for um, acceptance, and belonging, what uh, the the secular uh, psychology calls self-esteem and self-worth and things like that, there's a a legitimate appetite as far as who we are as relational human beings. We want to be in right relation with God. We want to be in right relation with one another. We want to be in right relation with ourself. And so a healthy self-perspective, that's an appetite. And God designed it that way, and God has provided for it that way. The craving where that gets per- perverted is where we have to constantly be um, puffing up our own our own image, our own self-esteem, convincing ourselves that that we're we're special. Okay, instead of accepting the real appetite <laughs> that I am a choice and, and I am a precious stone on the side of God. Jesus died for me, and I belong to God the Father. Man, <laughs> there it is—a legitimate appetite. Okay, so food drink, sex, self-esteem, relationships. We have, there's more. Appetites. And every, every legitimate one is designed by God and provided for. Look at uh, Proverbs 16.26. A worker's appetite... Oh man, why do I back up here? Goodness, there's so much in here. It's like a shotgun. There's little nuggets, little pellets in every verse. The uh, verse 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. The encouragement of a brother to a brother or a sister to a sister or when, uh, when you can speak truth. It were, um, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Look out for that. Verse 26 then, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. See, there are legitimate appetites. They are designed by God, and God designed it that way. 
God designed us. I mean, he could have made us, you know, (laughs) plant-based. We could have been walking around, you know, using photosynthesis to nourish our, our, our physical bodies or what have you. Okay. No, he designed us for food. He designed us to eat. Adam and Eve were, 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 were created to eat. They could eat from any tree they wanted except for that one tree, right? They had to eat. What happens if they don't eat? They don't, that's right, they die. They physically die without eating. That is a designed function of sinless mortality. Sinless mortality. Had to eat. God knows we have these needs. In fact, he designed it that way. It's motivational. You know, hunger is motivational. It urges him on. A worker's appetite. You know, hunger is a marvelous motivation. That's the, um, if a man will not work, neither let him eat principle. Hunger motivates. Okay? And uh, it works for him. His hunger urges him on. Anyway. Uh, how about Deuteronomy 8.3? God knows we have these needs. He's made provision. If he's feeding the, the sparrows, he's, uh, he's not forgotten us. Okay, He's not uh, ignorant of what our needs are. Here's uh, Moses reviewing how gracious God is to the second generation. That's what Deuteronomos is about, the second giving of the law. Deutero is second, Namos is law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. The, the children of the Exodus have to learn what these principles are. So all the commandments that I'm giving you today, commanding you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You should remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Are we adjusted from the heart to the will of God? Are we adjusted from the heart to what his word reveals? If we're not adjusted in spiritual life, forget secular life, forget success in in business or or family or home or anything else. Politics. All right. Spiritual life comes before the laws of divine establishment. Then he says, he humbled you and let you be hungry. Now notice, for a season, for a time. Does that contradict Proverbs 10.3 where he will not allow the righteous to hunger? Doesn't contradict it. Put them together. They complement each other beautifully. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know. So for a short season, he gave you a limited hunger where you recognized the need. Adam had to realize he was alone and then boom, here's the need. Right? They had to realize they were hungry. Boom, here's the need. God will allow for that short season the recognition of the deficiency so that he can provide for the deficiency and you can give him the glory for what he's done. You may not know what it is. <laughs> it may show up and you'll say, uh, what is it? And God says, all right, we're going to name this, what is it? And that's, that's manna. Manna is Hebrew for what is it? And so they called it manna. They called it what is it? Okay. And every morning they would go out and they would gather another day's worth of what is it? Well, it's, to me, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's kind of, you women can be thankful that Adam didn't say, what is it? <laughs> Adam would have woken up and thankfully he said, uh, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. He knew what it was. Okay, And you women were honored because of that. See, That's kind of funny, isn't it? Can you imagine? All right. Now, he humbled you, let you be hungry, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. So you can't just bank on, well, what what did your parents do? What did did previous generations do? What what does the world do to solve this kind of a problem? Not how it works. In spiritual life, you look to God and God provides. 
he might uh, make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And this is huge. This is the verse our Savior quoted when he was tempted by the devil. All right? We've got to understand this. Man does not live by bread alone. We start with spiritual life. Then we feed ourselves, and we feed our wives, and we feed our children, and we live in a nation, and we have, we have uh, the laws of divine establishment that come. But before that is our spiritual walk before the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 Can you imagine? The same pair of shoes for 40 years, walking through the desert. I think I used six pairs of boots in six months in Desert Storm. I was constantly going through boots. These guys lived 40 years in the, in the wilderness. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains of springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, out of whose hills you can dig copper. You know how much doctrine is in that one paragraph? For environmental rights, true environmental rights, for natural resource exploitation, for um, what real wealth is when you extract the wealth and put it to a profitable employment. All right, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. We bless God. God blesses us. We bless him. But only if we are oriented properly. Only if we have a correct perspective on his design. If we ignore his design, if we ignore his perspective, if all we are is about the the politics and the wealth and the money and the career and the resources and whatever else, if all we are about is uh, marriage and family and social life, and we've lost the basis for all of that, then we're we're the same fool Jesus was preaching at in Luke 12. Okay, We've got to be oriented properly. Legitimate appetites. They're designed by God and they are provided for. That includes food, that includes wealth, that includes everything. Clothing, that includes the, the iron and the, for industry, that includes the copper, that includes everything. All right, that's uh, Deuteronomy 8. How about Psalm 34? I've got two minutes left. We're going to have to pick up on this next week. Psalm 34. Not only am I out of time, but my uh, lunches with my deacon chairman tend to be very tasty. Psalm 34. The young lions... Let me back up. In fact, I'm going to pick up on this next week because there is so much here This is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now, I've had some tough testing, you've had some tough testing, but you've never had a king want to execute you and then you drooled all over your beard and acted like a madman so that uh, he thought that, well, this guy's a total lunatic, I'm going to let him go. Okay? At least I don't think you've ever done that. Um, If so, I want to hear about it. Okay? And so he escapes with his life by acting like a lunatic. And then he's able to bless. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continuously be in my mouth. And look what he's going to do. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. It wasn't just David's test. He had men that he was responsible for. He had the humble. He had the the, the lowly. He had the, the dregs had turned to him for leadership. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's going to lead them in corporate worship. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. The answer David gets is an encouragement to the, to the men of Ziklag, to, the, to the, the renegades that he had accumulated to himself. 
His testing became their encouragement. They looked to Him and were radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. This was David's opportunity to teach the men that he was responsible for. And they got to learn from his faith rest when he had the victory of this deliverance. So anyway, I, I'm over time, but we'll, we'll come back to this next week because this is the foundation that leads us into the young lions do uh, lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. What a promise, okay? Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the uh, blessings of your word. And I pray that we would learn not only intellectually and academically, but spiritually and truly, Father, that with humility we would receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. Father, make use of this teaching today to build us up, to strengthen us. Give us stability, Father. Encourage us in your truth. Your word is truth. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.